0: If you would open your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 through 13, Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 13, and again, a happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers and also graduation, happy graduation to all of you graduates, college, high school, driver's license, whatever it may be. Repetition and review are some of the teacher's most potent tools in helping listeners to understand. The Bible itself is a grand and diverse record of repetition. you go from Genesis to Revelation, it is constantly rehearsing and rehashing the same central narrative, that narrative that there is a good God, that we have fallen into sin, that we deserve His wrath, but He has made a way out for those who believe, a way ultimately shown in the person of Jesus Christ And that Jesus is coming again to judge the world. And this really forms the central thread, the backbone of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. You can see pieces of it across the breadth of God's Word. Repetition, review, helps us to remember, helps us to learn. And so we're going to review and repeat here for just a moment and go back to Hebrews chapter 1 through 4 so that we might remember where we have come from, so that we might know where we are going. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, written to a religious people who understood the Old Testament in grand, eloquent, elevated language, he begins long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Let's meditate on that for just a minute. God is a speaking God, a self-disclosing God, a revealing God. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament, the law, the poets, the prophets. All of the Old Testament is the, are the mouthpieces of God. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God spoke through prophets, through miracles, through signs, through wonders. But in these last days, God himself incarnate in the person of Christ, the one who moment to moment holds up the universe by his power, has spoken the final and best word. Matter of fact, Jesus is the final and best word from God. He is more superior than the angels. Jesus is the same. His years will have no end. He is enthroned with the Father in heaven. And if this is the one who has spoken, God, very God, incarnate in the person of Christ, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore pay close attention to him. Do not drift from what he has said, for how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He has come to restore our royalty, He's come to restore what we were created to be. In the garden, Adam and Eve were created to be co-rulers with God, to rule over this creation. We forfeited that right in Adam and Eve and continue to do so in our sin. But Jesus has come to restore that royalty, and he does so by suffering death, tasting death for everyone. Verse 10, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, God, very God, should be perfect or demonstrate His perfection through suffering on the cross so that He can make us brothers, children of God. That His cross sacrifice restores our royalty. He shared in flesh, verse 14. He partook of our weakness so that through His death on the cross He might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all of us from slavery to death. We don't have to fear death. Why? Because Jesus Christ died, defanged, and dethroned death, and he is raised again, and we are forever out of death's grasp. That's good news, isn't it? This is good news. He was made like us in every respect so that he might be a faithful high priest, making satisfaction, propitiation for our sins in verse 17. Therefore, Holy Brothers, chapter 3, verse 1, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Think on him. Meditate on him. Think on his works. Think what he has accomplished. Consider how Moses was faithful, but Jesus is superior to Moses, superior to Abraham, superior to David, superior to Joshua. Take care. Lest you play the game of religiosity and you come and you bask in the warmth of other people's faith. You hear the preaching week after week. You taste and see of the goodness of God around you, but you yourself have never believed. You're just playing the game. Beware that you have an unbelieving heart, that you're in the outer courts of the temple, but you've never been brought into the Holy of Holies by Jesus Christ. You see, the book of Hebrews is very cognizant of spaces. Call it the spatial argumentation. God came from heaven to earth. And if you look at the tabernacle, the temple, there's the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the inner courts, the outer courts, and then outside the temple. Be conscious and careful that you are close. You hear the word, you know the truth. You're in the outer courts and you're hearing the singing and smelling the smell of the incense and the sacrifices. But you've never trusted in the one who can bring you spatially into God's presence. The Holy of Holies. You see, that's why Jesus is the great high priest. He is the one who's qualified, not just by himself to go into the Holy of Holies, but all who trust in him are hidden in him, in Christ, the Apostle Paul says. That he can translate us from being outside of God's presence to being able to be in God's presence and literally physically one day in heaven be in the very throne room of God nestled up to the very throne room of the Most High a place where even angels are not invited into that sacred space. But be careful like the Jews of old who thought, man, my tent's only two blocks away from the tabernacle. I'm covered. I come from a Christian family. I go to a good church but you yourself have never believed Listen, what keeps you out of heaven, verse 19, is unbelief. The Jews were not able to answer the Israelites, forgive me, Jews, New Testament, Israelites, the Old Testament reference to them. We see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. It's not your imperfections that keep you out of heaven. Believer, as you wrestle with sin and you fail with sin, it's not your imperfections. They keep you out of heaven. No, if you are in Christ and you trusted in him, nothing can take you from his presence. He is so good, so strong. He holds on to his children and nothing can take you out of his arms, including your own sin. Now that's good news, isn't it? You may say, wait, hold on, I can live however I want. No, that's not what I'm saying. But know that God's grace is bigger than your sin. But what does religious person, churchgoer, keep you out of heaven is unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest, while heaven remains open, fear, lest you seem to have failed to reach it, that you're playing the game. That you're close, but you've never entered in by personal belief in Jesus Christ. We who have believed, verse 3, have entered that rest in part, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you have begun that journey into rest. You rest from condemnation, Romans 8. You rest from fear of hell and death. And one day we will have our rest consummated, completed. One day the Lord will come and take us home or we will die and he will usher us into his presence, into everlasting rest. There remains for God's people, verse 9, a Sabbath rest. And whoever has entered God's rest as rested from his works as God did from his, that the hope of the believer, brother and sister in Christ, is that one day we will enter in heaven and we will enter into an everlasting rest. Into God's rest. Into his arms. A place where we cease from the toil and anguish of mind, emotion, and body. Verse 11 through 13, now we come to our text. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God has spoken of rest, rest attained by belief. And you can be sure that that rest is open and that condemnation for those who do not believe are real. Why? Because God's word said it. God has said it, and his word, his words, his speaking are absolute and can be trusted. And here is the big idea or the big question for the morning. You ready for it? The big idea, which is actually a big question. Do you believe the word of God? Do you believe the word of God? That everything that I just read is in fact true. That everything that I just read will, in fact, come to pass. It will. Why? Because the Word of God is living, it's active, it's accomplishing its purposes, it's piercing, it's discerning, it exposes where your heart is at. It exposes and says, Are you playing the game? As a believer, it shows us and exposes us in joy where we stand before Christ. And it reassures me that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Do you believe in the Word of God? Well, let's take a look at what this Word does. I'm going to give you six things briefly here this morning. Six things in this passage that we find that the Word of God, in fact, accomplishes. And I want to use Psalm 119, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119 as a comparison text, and here is why. Psalm 119 is the psalm really that is the believer's response to God's Word. If God's Word is in fact absolute, authoritative, true, active, living, discerning, exposing, life-giving, if it is in fact all of these things, Psalm 119 is the psalmist's response to this word. Now what is the word of God? The word of God is all of God speaking, but the word of God, even more specifically, is contained in what we call the Bible. And not just contained, but this is the word of God. Every word from Genesis to Revelation, inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach us about who we are and who God is. And it is not just an inert book. What we are doing right now in sermonizing the text is not just a good lesson, but rather we believe that by preaching and teaching this text, and by reading it in our homes, and by talking about it in our lives, we are unleashing the very raw power of God in our lives, channeled by the Holy Spirit through the aqueduct of what is Scripture. This is a holy exercise. Thus says the Lord, and we endeavor this morning to hear what He said. Number one, what does God's Word do? God's Word directs us toward our heavenly rest. Number one, God's Word directs us towards our heavenly rest. Why was the Bible written? The Bible was written so that you might have knowledge of who God is. But the Bible was written so that you specifically might know how you can enter heavenly rest. The Bible was written so that you might know God and enter his rest. God's word is a road map. A treasure map, kiddos, if you can think of it that way. With a big X marks the spot and says life and rest can be found in God, specifically in the way that he is made through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to flip back and forth between Psalm 119, Hebrews chapter 4. Psalm 119, verse 81. Listen to the psalmist. He says, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Psalm 119, verse 123. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. I long for your salvation to be realized, for your promise to be seen in full. I can't wait. My eyes are focused heavenward. Now back to Hebrews 4. Again, it will be helpful to keep one finger in Psalm 119 and one finger in Hebrews 4. And we'll just kind of flip back and forth. Hebrews 4 verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall from the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive to enter that rest, to enter that place. By what? By believing in Christ. It's not your works, but our eyes are focused. Our striving is heavenward. Our striving is cast on our hope and our destination. Have you ever heard the phrase... Christians who are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. I hate that phrase. The problem is not that we have Christians that are too heavenly minded. We have too many Christians that are too earthly minded. The more heavenly minded we are, the more that we're able to walk through this life free of anxiety, free of worry, trusting the Lord's purposes and will because we know that heaven wins the day. We know that whatever election or whatever economic downturn or whatever lies in front of us, the more that we realize that this world is just a room that we are passing through into a doorway that has an infinite expanse of landscape radiating with the glory of God. Why would you stop in the hallway when infinity lies at your doorstep? you see too many times we, we linger in the hallway and we think the hallway is all there is instead of walking through the door to the grand foyer of heaven that is limitless in its glory and beauty. Strive to enter not this rest, not a rest here and now attained by money or pleasure or sex or whatever it may be, but walk through the hallway, strive to enter the rest that God has provided for you. Live your life with your eyes focused heavenward Matthew 5 verse 11 to 12 Jesus actually tells his disciples the blessed life the life affected by the gospel blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account how many of you like conflict by the way actually don't raise your hand some of you really do enjoy it if you're from New York or New Jersey you you really have have no problem with conflict right in the south right the opposite is true We smile and go about our business while, yeah, anyways. Okay, moving on. The bottom line is, it doesn't matter who we are, all all jokes aside. Nobody likes conflict, being misunderstood, being hated. But if you're going to live the Christian life, you are going to be rejected. That is just simply a reality of this existence. What keeps you focused? Jesus said, verse 12, here's where you're rejoicing and your joy is anchored. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in... Heaven, keep your eyes focused, heavenward. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, the apostle Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you live your, eyes with, live your life with your eyes heavenward? Are you striving for that goal and rest? Do you believe what lies ahead is worth our present afflictions? Strive. Belief is entered into by trusting in God's word, by trusting in what Christ has done. And the fire of belief as believers is stoked by God's word. If you have believed, you continue to read God's word so it stokes your fire for heaven, for hope, for Christ. So number one, God's word directs us towards our heavenly rest. Number two, God's word breathes life into our dead hearts. Let us strive, therefore, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Number two, God's word breathes life into our dead hearts. The word of God is described as living and active. And I think it's living and active in two ways. If we think about God's word being living and active, maybe think of it in two specific ways. Number one, God does what he says. You say, you can say something, you can speak something, but your words are in fact powerless to affect. Whatever you said. I want to fly like an eagle, right? Michael Jordan, I remember that song from the 90s. You want to fly? Well, you can't. Why? Because you're not an eagle. I'm I'm going to climb. I'm going to run like Usain Bolt. Well, those are your words, but you're actually powerless to enforce those. But you see, God's words and his actions are so intimate intricately tied up that God does what he says and what he says is what he does his words are in his actions are 100% consistent that which he speaks he's able to accomplish in other words his words are alive with power they are not empty whatever he says he can he will do will in fact be accomplished so what he said in Hebrews 1 through 4 so far being able to accomplish rest, and bringing his wrath, both of those are in fact true. What God's word says here in Scripture are in fact true and living. So number one, God does what he says. Number two, God's word is in fact enlivened, even living today. This is not just words that have been written 2,000 years ago. These are living words through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit channels His power through the aqueduct of God's Word to pierce and discern us and to expose us and to teach us about Christ. Some of you maybe are asking, yeah, but how can God's Word be trusted how do we know that this is historically and archaeologically God's word? I would actually point you towards a resource. This is, and without giving you a whole library, but this is a great starting point. It's called Understanding Scripture, an overview of Bible's origin, reliability, and meaning. If you have questions about history, archaeology, how we can trust God's word, how we can understand God's word, this is a fantastic starting point. It's accessible but at times it will stretch you. I'm going to leave it down here in the top step, and I would encourage you that if you have any questions along those lines, that would be a wonderful resource to pick up. God's word breathes life into our dead hearts. It's God speaking. It accomplishes what he set forth. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 through 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In other words, as God superintends creation and brings forth life on this physical ball that we call earth, verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. My word will go forward. Brothers and sisters, stop trying to be so winsome. Be obedient. Stop relying on your personality or your giftedness. Instead, rest in the word of God, that God, through his word, will channel that truth into your children, into your marriage, into your coworkers. Let God's word come alive in you. Be in the word talk the word, talking to some missionaries in North Africa, one of their first things they do is memorize the scriptures in Arabic so that they can just constantly seed it in their conversation as they walk through the market and just talking with people and it becomes the verbiage of their talk. Let God's word work in you. It breathes life into our dead hearts. It's living, it's active. Is your heart cold or hard? Are you in God's word? Are you allowing God's word to shape you? The Holy Spirit brings his word to life. I've used this illustration before, but it's been a while. God's word is the chisel. The Holy Spirit is the power behind the chisel. By letting God's word into your life, this is not just God's word is not just an entity a book with a good lesson that gives us information, but rather it is held specifically, wielded by the divine hand of God, and the Holy Spirit takes His omnipotent power and He wields that Word in our life. The power comes from God's Holy Spirit working through the Word to shape us and to make us like Christ, to give us understanding so we can walk through this world. God's word is not just information. A sermon is not just a lesson. Your devos are not just a religious exertion. But these again are the aqueducts, the water channels through which God moves his power in your life. Do you find your strength and life in God's word? Is it active and living? Because God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, this I picked up in Jerusalem is a Roman gladius, okay? It is a two-edged sword. Now, in the ancient Near East, many swords, because of the difficulty of smithing a double-edged sword, most of them are single-edged, and they're used for slashing. The Roman gladius really broke new ground in that it's forged as a double-edged sword, and it's primarily not a slasher it's not a movie thing where you kind of like go sword to sword and tink, 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 tink. Nope, nope, You have your shield, your gladius, and it's a thrusting sword. It's meant to pierce deep. It's meant to penetrate all the way through to the deepest parts of your physicality. It's a, it's a deadly sword. Whereas a surface shot may not go deep, a slashing mark may just create a flesh wound, This goes right down into the life force of the person meant to end that life. The Word of God is a double edged sword, sharp on both sides, and it is a thruster. It is meant to end your life. Listen to me very clearly God's Word is meant to kill your flesh, to drive deep into you, so that you might see that you are a sinner. And that through Christ, what, you can be made alive. That you can be resurrected in newness of life. And it's the word of God, his truth, that penetrates the external shell of our hard hearts so that we can be made new in Christ. Scripture says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit. So number three, God's word pierces our souls. It penetrates our deepest being. It separates the inseparable. I would say, just as a side note, be careful of drawing any conclusions about the nature of man and our existence by soul and spirit. Sometimes, um, People will say, well, man is a three-part being, soul, spirit, and body, or two-part body and spirit. But I I wouldn't caution you. In in the words of F.F. Bruce, a commentator, said, it would indeed be precarious to draw any conclusions from these words about our author's psychology, how he views the the psyche, the, the existence of mankind. Strictly speaking, there is no one point at which joints and marrow may be separated. The goal is to say that it penetrates into our deepest being. In some popular and devotional literature, and I've seen it today, uh, this verse is used to justify, and this is Thomas Schreiner speaking, another commentator, this verse is used to justify distinguishing between soul and spirit, and sometimes a whole spirituality springs up that separates the spirit, soul, and the body. These tripartite Three-part understandings of human beings are speculative and testifying to the creativity of their authors more than they reflect the teaching of the New Testament. Be careful. And I would agree in the context this author is simply highlighting God's power and that nothing can withstand his word. Our author is not concerned to provide here a psychological or anatomical analysis of the human condition, but rather to describe in graphic terms the penetration of God's Word to the innermost depths of who we are. God's Word pierces our hard shells and high walls. But let's ask the question, when is the last time God's Word has pierced you? When is the last time you've allowed God's Word to penetrate the depths of your heart? Maybe when you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading about how the Israelites complain and grumble all the time. Does that pierce you? Have you complained and grumbled this past year? Or in poetry, in the Psalms, has it ever pierced you like, I wish I could be in awe of God like that? Oh God, I want to know you more. Or Paul, where he tells us husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Does that pierce you? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? You see, the chisel is shaped to penetrate, to shape, to sharp point, so that the Holy Spirit can drive God's word deep into our hearts. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18 says Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Pierce me. Open my eyes discern me. Number four, God's word discerns us. It understands our thoughts and intentions. It checks our motives. It lays bare the intentions of your heart. You see, if God's word is powerful and is able to accomplish all things, do you not think that Satan is going to want to keep you from God's word and you just think, I didn't have my Devo, it's not a big deal. Oh, I didn't hear the sermon. Besides, what I really need to go to church for is the fellowship of the believers. Hear me out. Fellowship is critical. But is Satan slowly isolating you from God's word through which God wants to channel his power in your life? Through which you can be pierced, discerned, exposed even? Now we fear exposure, and I'm going to come to that in just a moment. But do you invite the piercing and the dividing of your soul and being, so that you might know that which is unholy and that which is holy. But do you place yourself under God's word daily where you say, Holy Spirit, work your power in your life? And I read your word. Now, Holy Spirit, do it. Shape me, pierce me, drive deep, show me. Number five, God's word exposes who we are, it does. It shows you where you stand. If you're playing the game, it shows you that you are a sinner dangling over hell. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then it shows you that you are safe in the arms of God. For verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This book is like a mirror and it takes down our masks and removes our walls and it shows us who we are and it hurts. And it's scary because we don't want to be exposed. We don't want what's inside to be seen. But listen, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, there is no reason to fear exposure. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, Jesus exposed himself to death on the cross, bore open his being. He knows what's in our hearts, and he loves you anyway. He knows what's behind that facade and that wall, and he went to the cross for you anyway. And one of the freedoms of the believer is to be able to stand before God and say, when Satan throws the sin in my face, I can say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm exposed, but I know that my security doesn't lie in this. It lie in him who suffered and died on my behalf so I could be made a child at his right hand for all of eternity. The Word of God exposes, reveals. And then lastly, number six, God's Word shows us Jesus Christ, which is the, and who is, the fulfillment of all God's words. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you look at this passage, you could put Christ in these places where the word is spoken. Let us strive, verse 11, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For Christ is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. He pierces us. He discerns us. We are laid exposed before him, and it's to him we must give account. Jesus Christ is not dead. He is alive. And the Holy Spirit brings these words to life so we can see a living Christ so that we can find life in Christ. God's word shows us Jesus. If you think that reading your Bible is just a checklist of religiosity, Or I'm just going through the motions and you think, I've got to read my Bible, got to to get more information. You need to reshape your understanding. This word is the living, active, incarnate power through the Holy Spirit by which we are shown the word, Jesus Christ. And you neglect it at your own peril. But if you cherish it and love it, like the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, open my eyes, let me see you, God. I treasure your heart. I treasure your word. Then be prepared to behold wondrous things out of God's law for his glory and for your joy and your good. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love, for your mercy, for your grace. And oh God, may we see the words of this book not as something empty or powerless, but the very power and words of God. May we stand on your word, proclaim your word, live your word. That everything you said in Hebrews 1 through 4 and beyond will be accomplished because your word is power. Father, if there is someone here who is not trusted in you, playing the game. Right now, your word is penetrating and piercing and exposing where they stand. May they this day confess that they need Jesus Christ, a Savior. May they, in their prayer right now, confess you as Lord. May they come talk to me after the sermon or someone else here who can show them from your powerful word the hope that there is in Christ. May today be the day of salvation so that they do not have to fear exposure. But they can say, I have been made clean by Jesus. Father, I pray your blessing upon my brothers and sisters this morning and my friends who may be in here. May your word pierce deeply this week. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said.